All right, this morning, I believe this is part 29 in our study on law and gospel. Uh, However, we're going to take somewhat of a detour to talk about something we've been talking about on the podcast for the last two days, maybe three days, and we'll make it all fit together. Uh, What thesis are we on for our study on law and gospel? The three, and what does thesis number three say? All right, rightly distinguishing the law and the gospel is the most difficult and the highest art of Christians in general and of theologians in particular. The book says it's taught by the Holy Spirit. We're going to set that aside because you know how I feel about that whole concept. Um, how, what, what did we say? It's taught where? In the school of experience. And why is it taught in the school of experience? Well, learning, yeah, learning it, we can understand the concept, but it's an experience where we struggle with it, and the reason we struggle with it is because what's the reality of the Christian experience? What's the reality of the Christian experience? We all sin, all right? We sin in thought, we sin in word, we sin in deed, we sin in attitude, and desire, we sin what we, uh, externally, internally, sin is a constant uh, reality in our life. And because it's a constant reality in our life, therefore law and gospel become very key in trying to figure it out. And how do we understand this? How do we understand our sin from a law perspective? How do we understand our sin from a gospel perspective? And this leads to people trying to come up with answers, right? And a lot of the times, the church typically looks at the sin in the life of a believer from a gospel perspective or a law perspective. Law perspective. And typically, what do we say in regards to sin in the life of a believer from a law perspective? Say that again? Okay, well, I I think more in the the Protestant world, that's more kind of a Catholic perspective, but more in the the Protestant world, I mean, from the Pope, that, that makes sense to give us the Catholic perspective, okay? But in the more Protestant world, we would say something like what? Well, one, we definitely say you don't have to. We're going to be talking about that definitely in, in the next minute. But the big thing is we say, if you commit this sin or this sin or this sin, or if you continue to commit this sin, you probably were never saved. So that's a law perspective. We're judging someone's life based off what they, their obedience or lack of obedience to a law to determine whether they're saved or not saved, instead of looking at someone and determining their salvation, not by what they do or don't do, but by what Christ has done. And that's a gospel perspective. But if you try to look at the Christian life from a gospel perspective, what is almost the, the accusation that will be coming your way almost within a couple of minutes? What's gonna, what are you going to be accused of? Okay, you're going to be accused of easy believism. What else are you going to be accused of? Starts with an A. Oh, antinomian. You're going to be accused of being an antinomian or antinomianism, right? Which means what? What's antinomian? No law, basically, no law. No law. All right, and, and I think it's, it's a, a very famous quote. I think it's attributed to Martin Lloyd-Jones and his commentary on Romans. But he said something to this effect, that the, you, only, you know that you've truly preached the gospel when you get accused of being an antinomian. If you've never been accused of being an antinomian, you've never preached the gospel. 
Because if you, when someone immediately hears the gospel, they immediately, well, because of what, remember we've talked about this. Are we naturally law people or gospel people? We're a law. It's built into us, right? It's the way we, it's the way we live our life. It's the way we parent. It's the way we do everything. Law, 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 right? So as soon as we hear the gospel, someone immediately does what? But, but wait, 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 wait. Are you saying, are you saying? I remember in the book of Romans, Paul has to deal with that, those kinds of questions. He brings those questions up. Because as soon as he preaches the gospel, someone wants to say, are you saying we can do whatever? Are you saying this? Are you saying that? Because people get nervous when they hear the gospel. And it's funny because I think they get more nervous about them. On one hand, I wouldn't get bothered if people got nervous, if they would be more honest about why they got nervous. But Because I, I think the reason people get nervous is they feel like if I hear the gospel, then I'm going to just go do whatever I want to do. So you've got to threaten me that I'm possibly not saved because if you convince me that I'm saved all because of what Christ did, then I'm just going to run out and live my life any way I want. Be honest with because I think some people's problems are really something going on inside of them. They know that they've got a sin problem and they've got to try to cover it up by being self-righteous, which is never the, never the hope. It's never the solution. All right. So this, this is a very important concept. Trying to figure this out in life. Everyone, look, every Christian tries to figure it out. Everyone. And I think we always run to a law solution. We always run to a law solution. But there's another, there's another concept. We talked about law and gospel. Make sure you write these two down. We've talked about this a lot. Uh, maybe not as much here, but definitely on the podcast a lot. Write down these two concepts. Position. Practice. Position and practice. This is very similar to law and gospel. What do we mean by position? What do we mean by position? Our position in Christ. And what is our position in Christ? Perfect. Righteous. Holy. All of our sins taken care of. We are absolutely perfect, righteous, holy. We are obedient. How obedient? Perfectly obedient. Right? That is what we are in our position. What determines that position? Christ. Right? His imputed righteousness. Remember, what, uh, remember according to the London Baptist Confession of Faith, two things are imputed to us. His passive, active obedience. His passive and active obedience is imputed to our account. Right? We've talked about this over and over and over. That is our position. What is our practice? Right? Okay, someone, Stacy said losers, right? We're losers. What else are we? Sinners who sin. And so, now, this is where the church has, within America has made, and probably around the world, but especially in America, has made a mistake. So, who is the first one who can find the verse that says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, old things are passed away, all things have become new. What is it? Oh, look at that, 2 Corinthians 5.17, everyone has it memorized. We all know it, right? We've all heard it quoted a million times, yes? We've all quoted it a million times. And how, how have you always been taught that verse? What is that verse, what have you been taught that that verse means? Well, you're typically taught that as a Christian, what are you? A new creature that was gone. And it's taught that that's true what? Positionally or practically? Practically, thank you. And we say that it's taught practically, but no one in the pew ever raises their hand and go, well, for that to be true, my old nature would have to be 
gone. So you would have to believe in the eradication of the old nature. And if the old nature is completely gone, and if I'm completely a new creature, and the old is, all, all complete, is completely gone, then what would be possible and not only possible, be probable? Sinless perfection. So we say that, and then what happens in the church? Sin, 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 sin. And nobody ever raises their hand and goes, wait a minute, if we're all new creatures and the old is gone and everything is new, why do we keep sinning? So what do we typically do? Pretend that we are what? Better off than we actually are. We, clothe, we cover ourselves in a robe of self-righteousness and we do a lot of pretending. And what is that? Does that accomplish anything? No. And if we're pretending, what does this destroy? Our ability to rightly distinguish between law and gospel, because to do all the pretending, what do we have to do? Do we see life from a gospel perspective or a law perspective? A law perspective. This is why this is so, this is why the book says it's like the highest art for a Christian to be able to figure this out. This is difficult stuff and it has practical implications. Well, the other night, I was, I don't even remember what time it was. I was listening to podcast and a podcast came on one of the, from Moody Bible Institute and they did a little devotional on Colossians chapter three. And I started listening and it took about three seconds and I was like, oh man, no, 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 no. So I did a, today's focus on it. Then I did a Bible study on it. So I've already worked on this for probably over an hour already on the podcast, working on Colossians 3. But I I, I know that we need to continue on in the book on thesis number 3, but I thought, you know what, let's use the Sunday school hour to do a little bit of work. Because if this is the highest art, right, well then the best way to learn the art is to work on it, right? Yes, so let's work on it. Colossians chapter 3 I'll do a lot of repeating what I've already covered for those listening online who already listen to everything else. Some of this will be repetitive, but it will be hopefully beneficial and helpful. All right? Everyone ready? All right, Colossians chapter 3. I gave you two new words to write down just a minute ago. What were those two words? Position and practice. Position and practice. Positionally, we are what? Perfect. In practice, what are we? Sinners, all right, with a sinful nature. And isn't that a weird contradiction? Do you understand why this has caused nothing but confusion in Christianity for 2,000 years? How do you understand that, that conflict? I wish I knew, but nobody else, nobody really knows. All right, here we go. Colossians chapter 3, starting verse 1, all right? We're going to use the terms law and gospel, and we're going to use the term position and practice, okay? Everybody got thinking caps on? All right, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If ye, then be, if ye then be risen with Christ. Stop right there. If ye then be risen with Christ. All right. Now, this idea of being risen with Christ is a reference to what? To what? Uh, uh, baptism in what way? Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, the phrase comes from that. All right. Well, let's go. Let's go back. Uh, does everyone remember what our condition is before salvation, right? We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Okay. In salvation, we are what? 
brought to life. We're made alive with God, right? And so, and what do, how do we understand that being made alive? What's a, a theological term for, for this? Regeneration. Very good. All right, we're made alive to God, okay? Now, some people say being made alive, alive to God. There's lots of debate on exactly what that entails, right? Some people say, well, now that I'm made alive to God, boom! Now I have the ability to do that. Almost like we now have supernatural ability to obey God. Well, if we had the supernatural ability to obey God, then all Christians should be what? Perfect, all right? But we can say this, that we are at least what? We were dead to God, now we are alive to God. And alive to God would entail what? Yeah, I mean, you believe in God, right? You trust, you're trusting in him, you believe in him. You're, you, I mean, there, there's something has changed in your thinking. Someone said, we see our sins, we acknowledge our sins. Something has changed there. At least we are, we are now, put it this way, we're now aware of God, we are now consider God, and we are now thinking about God to some level. Agreed? Now, if you go further than that, then it turns into a mess because you're going to start claiming all kinds of things that I can show you in five seconds is not even true in your own life, right? Which then would mean, well, then I'll probably not say, it, yeah, it would, it would be horrible to go this direction. But it starts with, if ye then be risen with Christ. If I'm risen with Christ, okay? Now, I'm now alive to God. So in some ways, this is more of a practical thing. There's a positional thing there as well, right? Because in salvation, what is true? We are united with Christ, yes? We're united in what three things? We're going to start a Christian 101 class in this church, okay? All right? We're united in his death. Oh, someone just said it. Fine, good. I was starting to get worried. I was just going to be like, man, what has happened here? Okay. We're united in his death. We're united in his burial. And we're united in his resurrection. Now, clearly, we didn't physically die. Right? You weren't physically buried. Okay? And you didn't physically resurrect. Agreed? So we are united in him positionally. Positionally, think about this. Positionally, I died when Christ died. I was buried with him and I rose with him. That is true positionally. Practically, I am now spiritually alive. There is a practical application here, but primarily, I'm just united with him. Now, to say that I died with him and I'm buried and I I rose with him, you see why we have to make this somewhat a positional concept, right? Because if I'm truly dead, well, then what should that mean? If I truly died with him, well, then guess what? I, I shouldn't have a sinful nature. I shouldn't have anything, correct? Right? Clearly, I still do. Are you still very much alive? Are you still very much alive to yourself? To your sinful nature? Yes, so there's clearly a positional aspect to this. Would everyone agree? All right, so we're now risen with him. Now, if, 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 stress the word if there, right? If. If you are risen with Christ. Now, we're going to get two clear things we're supposed to do. What are the two things we're supposed to do in verse 1? One of them is in verse 1. The other one is in verse 2. Seek and set. Seek and set. I spent an hour yesterday working on those two words. Seek and set. Seek and set. 
Alright? Now I'm not going to go through the Greek words and work on all of them because I did that yesterday. You can go back and listen. I spent all the time working on these two phrases. But let's, but I, here's what I want you to see. The if is the key part here, right? If something is true, then what I'm to do is to seek and to set. Now I, what am I to seek? Those things which are above. What am I to set? My affections, right? And what am I to set my affections on? Well, go first, the seek part. Look carefully at the, what it says to seek. Seek those things that are above and read the next phrase. Where Christ sitteth. That's, I, I cannot stress the importance of this. Typically, this is preached in a very law-based way where it says, you better seek, you better set. And then everyone's like, oh, I, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and it lasts till when? Sunday afternoon, maybe. <laughs> maybe, 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 maybe. Maybe I'll make it to the Sunday evening service. Typically, you've already forgotten it by the time you get home, right? But it, everyone is committed that they're going to do it, right? I don't want to preach it that way. I want you to see something, Okay. You're seeking those things above where, where who sits? Oh, this is very important. So where is Christ? Okay. In heaven? I am to seek what? Things above. All right. Think of, think of you can draw a horizontal line and you can draw a vertical line, right? Horizontally, I'm walking in this life, right? Uh, this is where I live. I have a horizontal existence, Yes. But as a Christian, to live here, I need to seek that which is vertical, which is above, right? Where Christ is. But please note, where Christ is, what am I to set? My affections on what? Okay. Well, re, uh, how does the verse above, did it, say, did it say anything else? Not the things on the earth, right? So my seeking and my setting is to be vertical. It's to be where Christ is. It's to be where Christ is. Now, look at the next verse. What does the next verse say? Oh, I'm dead. What else does it say? Oh, my life is hid with Christ in God. All right. Positionally, positionally, I'm united with him where? Death. Burial. What did Christ do after his resurrection? He ascended to the right hand of the Father. I'm united with him. Where is my life? Hidden with him. Positionally, where am I? At the right hand of the Father. In my position, what am I? As holy and perfect as Christ is. That's hard to even comprehend, right? So that's where I am positionally. So here's the thing. Listen to me carefully. The Christian life, as we walk the horizontal line is to look at that, is to uh, walk that horizontal line in light of the reality of our vertical position. So I'm seeking and setting my mind on what is true positionally as I live my life practically or horizontally. Now you see where law and gospel comes into play here? Horizontally, what do I see? Sin, yes? What do you experience? Sin, what do you experience? Failure. How am I to see that sin and failure? In light of 
my position, right? I'm it. My life is hid with God. I'm dead. I'm completely dead, right? So, and, and positionally speaking, correct? I've got to see that reality is as I live my life. Do we live our life with the positional reality in our mind, or do we live our life with the practical reality in our mind? Usually the practical. But how do, well, here's what's messed up. How do we typically handle the practical? You got two options. I'll, 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 let's, let's do it this way. Well, well, well we do. Well, think, think of it this way. Since we've started this series on law and gospel, we've had some serious reactions to the series. Okay? What do you think the two reactions are? There's just been two. We can put them in two categories. What do you think the reactions have been? One hates it, can't stand it, and they accuse it of being what? Antinomianism. Antinomianism, right? They accuse me of being an antinomian, easy believism, free grace, all these other... They don't want to put me in some category. They've got to give me a name. They've got to give it a name, right? Because they don't like it, right? What do you think the other side have said? The other side is like, I have spent my whole life trying and trying and trying to be godly and trying to be God. And I've fallen short and fallen short and fallen short. And I've been discouraged or I've been depressed and I haven't known what to do. And all of a sudden now you're telling me my, the focus should be on the gospel and not on the law. Now, isn't it weird how some people get it and some people don't? I will argue the reason the people who don't get it don't get it is because they are unwilling to acknowledge how messed up they are. They're pretending to be something. Oh, you know what would change all of those people's minds in about 5.2 seconds? Their sin be revealed. All of a sudden it came out. Oh man, their opinion would change really quick, right? All of a sudden, if the, if the dirt was made, they would, they would change their mind. But as long as you, can, as long as you know, don't commit any of the big sins, you can convince yourself that you're all good. Well, what we have a tendency to do as we're walking the horizontal, a lot of people do a lot of pretending. Remember, remember did, was Luther any more sinful than all the rest of the people in the 1500s? No. But Luther obviously was more aware of it. In fact, how aware of it was he? Well, it, oh, I, some would say it led him to a point of insanity. To the brink of insanity. Some people say his awareness of his sin is a, uh, basically has been accused of being a mental disorder. That you shouldn't be that bothered by your sin. Because most Christians aren't. Are, are, have you ever been as bothered by it as Luther has? Not even close. He was losing his mind. Now, but because he realized how sinful he was, he realized he had to have a solution. And the solution, what did he realize the solution wasn't found in? Doing things. Because he could never do enough. And even if he did it, he would turn around and do what? The opposite. So ultimately, he had to realize his only hope is, and what what would Luther refer to it as? An alien righteousness. Remember, we've talked about this, right? An alien righteousness. I talked about it on Reformation Day, I think, on the podcast. So he, he would have all of a sudden he realized, i got to see myself that way. As we live our life, we have to see 
ourself and our positional reality. Positional reality. Does that mean we ignore how sinful we are? No. It's we acknowledge how sinful we are, but we realize that in Christ I'm what? Perfect, holy, and righteous. And guess what? Nothing can change that. Now, nobody, some people don't like to hear that, right? You say, so if you, if you got in the car right now, went, got plastered drunk tonight, right? Did all kinds of horrible things. Guess what I would still be? Oh, some of you don't even want to say it. What would I still be? Perfectly righteous and holy. How could David be considered a righteous man? How could Abraham be considered a righteous man? How could anyone in the Bible be considered a righteous man? Because it's by... But how are we declared to be righteous? By faith, by faith, by faith. I'm declared to be righteous by faith. People don't want to hear that. What's our, what's our default position? If tonight I went out, got drunk, did all kinds of horrible things, y'all saw me on the news in Vegas doing who knows what, right? You would immediately start probably, someone would probably say, there you go. He's probably not saved. Probably never was saved. Because in our mind, we can't wrap around. We cannot understand how I can still be declared righteous. But what's the whole point? I'm declared righteous because of faith, not because of what I do. But we want to see, we, and so we have to constantly be seeking and setting our affections there so that we can live our life horizontally in light of the vertical. That's the, that's the never-ending struggle of the Christian life. Living out practically, right? Living out in practice in light of what is true in our position. To live our life out in the gospel, not according to the law. So far, so good? All right, so let's put that all together. If, you the, if, ye, the be, if ye then be risen with Christ, and, and look, I can't express to you how important that is because that, that, that gives us the insight right there. Seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. And then look at, the next, look at verse 3. What's the first word? For ye... Here's the reason we're seeking and setting, right? Why? I'm dead, and my life is hid with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. I'm dead. I'm, my life is already there. Christ is just going to come. Think about it. Christ is going to come to take me practically to bring me to where I've already been positionally. Does that make sense? How, how certain is the fact that you're going to be glorified? It is absolutely certain, right? It's not dependent on what I do. So the seeking and setting, this is what it always turns into. Oh, every sermon on seeking, what, what does it always turn into when we, you preach sermons on seeking and setting? What does it always turn into? What does every sermon turn into? Come on, y'all know. Or if you don't, you need to start listening to sermons. Okay? All right. Hey, if you seek and set, then what? Hey, how much time do you watch TV? You're not seeking and setting first, God. How much time do you do this? How much time do you read your Bible? How much time do you study your Bible? How much time do you meditate on Scripture? Doesn't it not turn into all of that? Someone comes in like, man, that football game. Hey, brother, you need to be setting your affections on things above. 
Hey, I, you need to be seeking. How come you're not seeking and setting your affection on things above? Uh, over and over and over and over and over. And you live your life going, well, if I do this, I'm not seeking and setting. Because don't you constantly do things where you're not seeking and setting your aff- affections above? You've got these other things. I'm not saying there's not a practical application, but the reality here, it's not so much about that. It's seeking and setting the truth of my position so that I can understand the horizontal from that perspective. And all the verses around it deal with the positional reality, right? I've been risen with Christ. What am I seeking in verse, uh, I think it's verse 1 or verse 2? The things above where Christ is what? Where Christ is seated. Please, that's the giveaway. Then I set my affections on things above, not below. And then the very next verse, next verse, four, I'm dead. I'm dead. Well, we all know we're not dead practically. I'm dead positionally. I'm seeking and setting that reality. And then what does it go on to say? My, Christ, my life is hid where? With Christ in God. I am seeking and setting my affection on that reality. Amen? All right, so far so good? All right, this gives me not quite 30 minutes. But here's where our problem becomes. Verse 5. Oh, boy. Verse 5. What's the word? Mortify. All right. What, what, if you're a good Bible student, What's the question you should ask as soon as you read those words? What's like the first three words there, first four words? Mortify, therefore, your members, right? Okay, well, that's, okay, that's a good question, all right? How-to is good. I, 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 won't, I won't even, uh, I, I think that's a good one, but there should be a, another question that goes beyond the how-to. But how-to is obviously very important. What would be another question? What, do what? Okay, I, well, that, that's a good admission. I haven't done it yet, okay? What's another question we could ask? Stephen is at least throwing out the question. Somebody else. What are some other questions we should be asking? Okay, that's a good one. It, it, it says we're already dead, so why do I have to mortify anything? There's, that's a good one. That gets back to this position and practice thing, right? But here's the question I have. Oh, say it. What'd you... Oh, is it done in Christ? Oh, that's good. That's a good question. All right, I'm going to be a more practical. All right. If, now listen to me, if I look at you guys and say, you can, you possess the ability, God gives you the ability to mortify. What does it say to mortify? Your members. Your members. In other words, what's the NIV's translation? Okay, putting to death what's in my nature. Putting to death. If I, it, do I have the ability then, I'll say it this way, because this is kind of how the, the uh, podcast handled it. Do you possess, do I possess the ability to basically mortify sin? Now you understand that's a trick question, everyone. Because if you say yes, then what is possible and probable? Sinless perfection. Do you, do you, that, oh. 
This, co- this causes me so much like I just don't even know what to say or do. But you know how many Christians say that we do have possessed that ability? I could, go, I, could, I could just do random sermon reviews from now until I'm a thousand. And guess what? Sermon after sermon. You can! You now possess the ability. God gives you the power. You can mortify sin. And then almost somewhere later they'll say, but you can't be perfect. Do you understand how the contradiction? If I can mortify it, then I can be perfect. If you say I can't be perfect, then you say there's a limit to what I can or cannot mortify. How do Christians, how do, I don't understand how we hear these words and everybody's just like, amen, that sounds good. The, the, those kinds of sermons should cause just like massive, like a migraine and you need to go lay down in a dark room, okay, because I don't get it. So we've got to figure this out. So where should we start? Grab a Bible dictionary, we'll start there. Let's see what happens. That's, that's where I would start with. Let's start with mortify. All right? Start with mortify. If you find the uh, entry before I do, yell out the por- uh, page number. Look at that. A59. All right. A59. Is it a long or short entry? It's short. Uh, nobody likes that, right? I don't like it. Do you like it? I don't like it. I, I, need, I need like about 50 pages. I need like 100. I need a book on Mortify. Oh, wait. There is a classic book on Mortify, and we don't ever want to read that classic book. We won't go into that. Okay, all right. Here we go. Tell me what you think here. Everybody ready? Mortify is a KJV word. Hey, in the uh, NIV, does it use mortify? Put to death. That's right. Put to death. All right, you're right. All right, KJV word for uh, the practice of disciplining one's body and physical appetites through self-denial. All right, let's stop right here. Okay. Now, From a purely human perspective, let's not even get into the spiritual. Just from a purely human perspective, forget forget the spiritual anything. And the reason I want to forget the spiritual thing is because Christians always come along and want to add that we possess some ability or power that the lost people don't have. That's our go-to like, we have, we have this, we have this, so we can do better than them. Okay, just from a purely human perspective, right? Humans do possess the ability to be what? Very self-disciplined. Correct? Yes? And it, it really fluctuates from person to person, but there's, a, there's some people who are extremely, very, very self-disciplined, right? They can accomplish a lot of things. They can limit themselves to a very strict diet, right? They can uh, dedicate themselves to working out three, four times a week. Yes? There are those through quote-unquote self-discipline, they bring themselves to be able to break the habit and addiction of narcotics. Yes? Alcohol. So there's a lot we can accomplish just from a purely human standpoint. Okay? But let's be honest here. We got to look at now. Now let's bring in the spiritual. All right? 
Let's bring in the spiritual. If we talk about mortifying something, we've got to think about this as logically as we can, all right? If we say that we can, through self-discipline, self-denial, mortify certain sins, right? On one hand, we have to acknowledge, well, humanly, you can. But what do we know is absolutely the truth of the Christian life? You name the sin, I supposedly mortify it, what will still be true at that exact same time? Do I? I heard multiple things. Okay. Well, well, think of it this way. Right? Let's just say I can truly mortify that one. Let's say I can mortify one. The truth is I'm still going to be committing thousands and thousands of other sins, right? I'm still going to be committing sin. No, for whatever sin I mortify, there's other sins still going on, right? What's the, I give the three scripture test every single, almost week now on Law and Gospel. What are the three scriptures I point out over and over and over and over and over and over to show us our true state? Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be holy as God is holy. Now, just start there. Can I mortify myself so that I love God with all my heart, mind, body, and soul, love my neighbor and myself, and as holy as God is holy? We all, we, okay, we all agree we can't do that. So clearly there's a limit to the mortifying thing. Yes? But I can, there may be certain actions, certain sins, certain practices that you say I can mortify. The problem is we all know that That's not the only one. It doesn't fix the problem. But here's even what's worse. When when you add in the biblical concept, I may mortify, like here's the thing, I can mortify an action, but I could still be guilty of what? The thought, the desire, which which would be really messed up, right? Like on one hand, I'm patting myself on the back. I've never done A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Well, congratulations to you, but I bet you've committed some of those A, B, C, D, E, F, G where? And it's amazing, the ones who committed in the mind and the heart, well, not, not, not in practice. In truth and Christianity, the ones who committed in the mind and the heart are always considered more godly than the ones who committed in the flesh. That is, that is absolutely truth of Christianity. If anyone says that's not true of Christianity, it's absolutely a lie. Right? P- people will sit in a church and church discipline someone while everyone in that church is guilty of, of the internal sin, but they're going to punish the person for the external sin. Right? It's kind of it's like when the woman was caught in adultery and then Jesus, remember, knelt down. We don't know what he wrote down. There's lots of you know, guesses of what he wrote down. But put it this way. Whatever he wrote down, what ultimately ended up happening? Everyone dropped their rocks. Because somehow Jesus convinced them that they were no better than, than her. And guess what? Many of them may never have committed adultery. That only works on Pharisees. It doesn't work on uh, Baptists. Because Baptists would be like, Jesus, get out of the way! I got a rock to throw. And if you don't stand there, you're going to get hit with it. People's like, that's horrible. We would never do that. That's a lie. Protestant Christians have been doing that forever, right? 
We're going we're to take the person down and we're going to destroy them because guess what? They committed the sin that I only thought about committing. And because they did it, then I'm, I'm better than them because I only thought about it. Where Jesus says, <laughs> yeah, I know. And so, that, that, so the mortifying thing becomes really complicated now. So on one hand, I want to make sure we understand from just a practical way, there are things we cannot do and there's things we can stop doing. Everyone understand that. But even if I stop the physical, I'm still maybe guilty of it internally. Now, does that mean we should run around and commit the external? I'm not saying we should. I'm just saying I want to make sure you realize whatever mortifying we can agree can happen, we've got to realize there's a major problem with it from a spiritual perspective. All right, what else do they go on to say about mortify? They give us two scriptures. Everybody look at them. Go to Romans 8.13. What does Romans 8.13 say? I'm going to grab a different trend. Oh, I see. Here we... Now, do you see the major problem with this scripture? This would, this would scare you to death? All right. I'm going to, I'm going to read Romans 8. I'm going to 12 in this translation. Everybody ready? So then, brothers and sisters, we're not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That seems to imply what? Roman Catholics would love this verse. That your salvation is determined by what? Whether you live by the flesh or whether you put to deed. So guess what? You, you, I, can anyone say they're saved then? Do you live by the flesh? We do. I don't know if that's a helpful verse. And then the next one they give is Colossians 3, 5, which we've read. We're working on, right? All right? Okay. Oh, if you're looking up the word mortify, yes. But I'm just saying, I don't know why people would think that that's a great verse. That's, a, that's, that's the most condemning verse I can think of. So this is how it would work. You would come to, you would come to church and you're like, I'm a sinner. I'm like, okay, here's the deal. You want to be saved? Here's what you have to do. Believe on Jesus. And then what else do you have to do? According to Romans 8.13. I got to I got to mortify the deeds of the flesh. You can no longer live according to the flesh. So, you be saved and do this. And people say, "No, no, 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 no. That verse is not saying that. The verse is saying if you don't do that, you're not saved." Isn't that saying the same thing? And who would be saved? This would be a major problem. Would everyone agree this would be a major problem? All right? Okay. Everyone should say amen here, okay? The New Testament calls believers to be what? Back to the Bible dictionary. The New Testament calls believers to be what? All right, stop right here. All right. We're to be crucified with Christ. Someone find the verse that talks about us being crucified with Christ. See who can find it first. Find the verse that talks about us being crucified with Christ. Is it Romans or is it Galatians? Or is it Ephesians? You can just grab uh, the Blue Letter Bible app and type in the word crucified. Probably would find it in about three seconds. Okay. 
Is it Galatians? I don't know. You, you guys tell me. Hey, I'm just trying to help you guys out. Just... Galatians 2.20. All right. Thinking caps on? All right. Uh, read it from the NIV for first. Okay. Galatians 2.20. Stop. Stop. Okay. Everybody hear what he just read? I have been. Okay. Uh, who's got the King James? Okay. What does it say? I am. I am. I have been. I am. I have been. All right, go ahead. I have been crucified with Christ. Uh, and I no longer live. I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. All right. What did we just see in Colossians 3 about us? We're dead. We're dead. Oh, wait, we're dead. Remember I said we are united to Christ in a couple of ways? We are united to him in his death. Burial, resurrection, and ascension. Paul is speaking of being, de- being crucified with Christ as a what kind of act? Come on, those, all of you uh, punctuation, grammar people. Past tense, thank you. As a completed action. Are you crucified in Christ? Yes, you're crucified in Christ. Can anything change you being crucified in Christ? No, because you were united to him. Now go back to the dictionary. What do they say about us being crucified with Christ? Now wait a minute. They're saying that we're crucified with Christ by what we do. Does everybody see how they just flip this? They are saying we are crucified by based on what we do. So based on this concept, how many here are crucified with Christ? Man, you, this is a really messed up. Y'all are a sinful church, okay? Because other churches, everybody would say, we are, okay? Well, why, what's wrong with you guys, okay? Come on. Have I beaten you down so much that you can't be self-righteous? Come on. Give me the answer other Christians would. No, but you think I'm joking. I could preach this that you are crucified with Christ by you mortifying the flesh. And you know what I would get in some churches? Amen. They would do something you guys don't even do. They would probably... I've never applauded for me. They they would applaud. Right? When I'm doing the podcast, I have to use the sound effect for the applause. Okay? All right? All right? They would applaud. Isn't that bizarre that they would applaud? Because what everyone should do is like, hey, 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 uh, did he just say what I think he said? That we're crucified in Christ if we mortify the flesh? I, I live with you. I know you're not doing it. Okay? I know I'm doing it, but I know you're not. Okay? Wouldn't that be like crazy? Read the dictionary again. Am I misreading it? Am I, am I misreading it? The New Testament calls believers to be crucified with Christ by mortifying or putting to death such sinful deeds and thoughts as fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. The way, you've got to put away all of that to be crucified with Christ. Now, Mary said it early, early on. 
She said, are, are we mortify, are, do we mortify the flesh? And how did you say it? In Christ. Is that done in Christ? That, that's, that's a very good question. All right? And we'll circle, we'll circle back to that. But the dictionary scares me to death. That's frightening. Because you know what that means? I've never met a Christian who's, who is crucified with Christ. I've never met one. I would argue Paul wasn't crucified with Christ. That, that is frightening, is it not? Yeah, the dictionary. Yeah, from the dictionary perspective, who is? So we got a problem, do we not? All right, go back to Colossians. Oh, man, we're running out of time. Go back to Colossians 3. All right, Colossians 3. Mortify therefore your members, which are upon the earth. All right, so now where, where is he? Where is he? Isn't it kind of interesting? In uh, verse 3, uh, where are we? We're dead and we're hid with Christ and God. Everybody see that? That's what we're see- setting our affections on, right? That's what we're seeking, the reality of that. But in verse 5, now where are we? Upon the earth. Very good. Do you, do you see that distinction in the text? I can't just be overlooked, right? All right. So, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Now, name some things. Fornication, uncleanliness, inordinate affections, right? Next, evil concupiscence, right? And what is concupiscence? Has the NIV translate uh, con- concupiscence, if I can say the word correctly? Uh huh. Yeah, concupiscence is evil desire, evil desire, and covetousness. I love the fact that covetousness gets thrown in there, evil desire gets thrown in there, because everyone, we, we, everyone's got no problem going after the sexual sin, right? But isn't it amazing that sexual sin gets connected with covetousness? <laughs> right? You may never have a problem with sexual sin. I bet you a lot of people may have a problem with some evil desires and covetousness, right? Which is idolatry, and idolatry really is what? What do we typically, how do we define idolatry? How do we define idolatry? Anything we put before God. Right? Anything you desire more than God. It may not be a sexual desire. Congratulations if you've never had that problem. Awesome, right? But guarantee you, there's things that you put before God. Like what? Everything. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Now, let's stop right here. So, let me ask this question. All right? Now, a couple of questions that we'll have to end. Oh, man. We always run out of time. All right? Thinking caps on? Now, this passage, Colossians 3. Let's go through it quickly. Start in verse 1. Law, gospel. What in verse 1 is gospel? All right? What else does it say? Is that all it say in verse 1? Okay, now you, you can't say gospel and then read the word seek, all right? Because 
risen with Christ may be a gospel reality, but seek is a law. Everybody see the law there? Okay. Okay, so it's something we have to do. Now, but the key, and this is what I want you to see. The law, the reason the law is given is because the law is calling us to think and do something in light of what? The gospel reality. Remember, I've, I've tried to already point this out. The posi- it's the positional reality that we have to put our focus on. But it's something we do, right? It doesn't say Christ does the seeking for us. Remember, anytime you read a passage that tells you to do something, it's what? Law. Everybody see that? But in this case, the, the, the law is a result or it's, it's connected to the gospel in what way? The gospel reality motivates me to seek and think according to that gospel reality. Right? So, there's, so it says, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth, right? There's the, there's the gospel innocence motivation. Christ is sitting there. Next verse. Set, that's law, obviously, right? Next verse. That's gospel. That's gospel. It's the gospel reality that motivates me now, according to law, to, to live that out. Next verse. That's clear gospel. That's absolute gospel. That tells us exactly what God and Christ is going to do. It has nothing to do with us at all. He's going to come get us, yes? And what is he going to come do? He's going to remove us from the horizontal so that we can now experience the reality of our position. And then verse 5. Law. Clearly law. Mortify. Mortify. Now, when it comes to mortify, we've got to try to understand this. All right, so let's think about this. On one hand, what is true of our position? We're dead. Remember, it's already been stated, right? So, we've already been dead. We are crucified with Christ. That is a done... So, in one sense, when it comes to your position, what is true about mortification? It's done! You've, you're, you're dead! You're a new creature! The old is gone! Everything's been mortified in your position. Now, what, is, what have we talked about? I need to see that positionally I have been mortified, and now what am I called to do practically? To pursue... And practice what is true positionally, but will I ever accomplish it? Not even close. I mean, come on, let's just be honest. Not even close. Not even close. So, how do I handle my discouragement from falling short of it practically? And what in light of what's true positionally? Remember, that's what we've been talking about the whole hour. The whole hour, right? The whole we got to seek and set what? Seek those things which are above and set our affections on things that are there, right? That's how we view everything. Now, vertically, I got to look up vertically, and what do I see? A mortified, perfect, holy person, and you put your name there. Yes. Horizontally, what do I see? A sinner. Does your sinner have any connected to any of those things mentioned in uh, verse 5? Evil desires? 
Oh, thank you. Someone's willing. All of them. He's like, I got them all down, right? Check, 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 check. That's tr- and that's true. That's, that's the truth of every... I don't care where they go to church. That's the truth. Now, I, what should motivate me to at least pursue mortifying these things and fighting against these things? The positional reality. The positional reality should motivate us to pursue this, but when we fall short, what do we turn to? Not discouragement, depression, and I'm going to try harder, but the positional reality that says it's already been done. Does that make any sense? So sometimes, someone who has, is struggling to mortify the flesh, and we'll end with this. Someone who's struggling to mortify the flesh. Wait, in some way should be what? All of us. Sometimes in that struggle, what does a person need to hear? Thesis number three now. This is where it comes down to play, right? Here's where thesis three comes to play. Sometimes what does a Christian need to hear who's struggling to mortify the flesh? They need the gospel. Sometimes they may need the law. And the, to know which one they need at any given time is the art that is hard to know. Because sometimes we probably offer, well, what do we typically offer people? Law. Because we're afraid if we give them gospel that they'll do what? Stop trying. Stop trying. That we're just going to be like, oh, I can just do whatever I want. But in reality... The position should motivate the practice. And why should the position motivate the practice? Because no matter how much I may fail at it, no matter how short I may come up, it's already true positionally. I've got nothing to lose. Now, some people are like, no, 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 no. You've got to tell them that they're going to lose their salvation. You've got to tell them they're going to prove they're not saved. I don't think that motivates. I think that that leads to self-righteousness or it leads to total depression, discouragement, and they abandon Christianity because they will determine that what? Doesn't work. It doesn't work. All right? We'll stop right there. All right, Lord God, we come before you this morning. Long gospel is... Lord, I, I don't know if we're truly ever going to understand it. And Lord, the struggles with it will remain. But I pray that you would just help us continue to try to figure this out and understand how this works in everyday life because it's something we all need. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...